please join us for the pilot episode of I Dream of Teeny, The Lady in the Bottle. Bewitched, bothered, and bewildered, am I? Welcome to Bewitched, Bothered, and Bewildered, our podcast about magical sitcoms from the 1960s. I'm Frank. And I'm Molly. You're joining us for the first episode of I Dream of Jeannie. The Lady in the Bottle. But before we get started, we're going to give you a brief synopsis. When the rocket launch for a space mission goes awry, American astronaut Captain Anthony Nelson finds himself stranded on a desert island in the South Pacific. While waiting for the Navy to rescue him, Tony finds an antique bottle lying in the sand. When Tony opens the bottle, he is shocked to find a beautiful 2,000-year-old genie, whom he promptly names Genie. After helping him get rescued, Tony sets her free, but Genie decides to follow him home to NASA's residential compound at Cocoa Beach, Florida. Tony must now hide Genie's existence from his fiancée, Melissa Stone, from his commanding officer, General Wingard Stone, and from the suspicious NASA psychiatrist, Dr. Alfred Bellows. Excellent. So this episode starts out seriously. It looks like it could be a drama from that era. Absolutely. There's a lot of stock footage and there is no canned laughter for the first five minutes or so. Right. And I don't know, the funniest thing to me is that he's putting on this spacesuit and these guys are helping him. Major Healy is wearing a, a sweater, you know, like a pullover <laughs> sweater, as he's putting Tony's helmet on his head to go into space. I don't know. It's something about that. I think if you're suiting up the astronaut, you're probably not wearing a pullover sweater. They're in a very ramshackle sitcom situation room where there's like a padded leather chair. It does not look like a staging area for a rocket launch. No, it doesn't. So it's probably important to mention that at this point in 1964, there had been no manned lunar landings, not until five years later. So where was Tony going? Was he just supposed to be orbiting? That's it. That's it. This is the great space race with the Soviets, where we had had already a number of orbital missions uh, since 1961. But this was very cutting edge. So this was the JFK space race. Absolutely. I wonder what Jackie Onassis thought of Genie. It's funny that you should bring that up because I feel like we're going to talk a fair amount about Jackie O. Tony's fiance makes me think of Jackie O so much. She does. She's, well, she's the raven-haired beauty of the day. The black-haired demon, as Jeannie likes to call her. So there's a lot of exposition that's given to us in the first 30 seconds of dialogue. We learn that Tony is really eager about his orbital mission. He's engaged to his commanding officer's daughter. His commanding officer, General Stone, is sort of a rank-and-file square, which suits Tony just fine because Tony's kind of a square as well. He's getting married next Sunday, and Tony's friends and coworkers at NASA are throwing him a bachelor party. So all of this gets spat out very, very quickly as they're putting on Tony's spacesuit and adjusting his astronaut helmet. Morning, 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 morning. How are you feeling, Tony? Kind of eager, sir. 
Oh, he's a lucky devil. You wouldn't want to sit this one out, would you? Uh, no, thanks. It's my baby. Everything checks out, General. Good. Uh, Melissa asked me to give her a love. She wanted to come and see you off herself, but I don't break regulations, not even for my own daughter. No, sir, I understand. Tony, this is your week. Up in orbit today and marrying Melissa on Sunday. We'll throw you a bachelor party when you get back. So he goes up and then there's a problem. Yes. His capsule, Stardust One, misfires almost immediately and the mission has to be scrubbed. Keep going, baby. Final stage misfired. He won't be able to maintain orbit. Control the Stardust One. Control the Stardust One. Come in, Tony. Stardust One, go. Final stage rocket misfired. We're going to have to bring you back. Stand by. Roger, his buddy, is is super bummed out. I mean, like, that's really serious, too. That's like the, the last sort of serious situation you see Roger Healy in. This is General Stone. We have an emergency. Stardust One is coming down. Alert the Seventh Fleet. Then cut to the set of Gilligan's Island, <laughs> where Tony has marked out SOS with his feet in the sand. Mm-hmm. Oh, I think he, it was driftwood, and I think it's a reason that he even grabs the unusual bottle that he finds in the sand. I think it, he was making it part of his SOS sign. So he's making the SOS sign, and Jeannie pops out and immediately bows to him, and she is not speaking English. <laughs> Shall we speak briefly on what Jeannie is wearing? (laughs) It's always the same. (laughs) It's always the same. (laughs) There's nothing to discuss fashion-wise because she's always wearing her pink and red harem costume. Right, pink and red, which I was always taught didn't go together, but they kind of signify the Orient. And she's speaking Arabic. Persian. She seems to be genuinely speaking it. It, That sounds like Barbara Eden. Yes. I'm sure she studied for weeks to figure (laughs) out how to pronounce that Persian correctly. And, of course, she looks so (laughs) un-Persian. She's the opposite of Persian. Well, yes. So if you think of, like, an Arab or a Muslim country, which is a, what I assume she, you know, where where are they thinking she comes from? Saudi Arabia or Turkey or... So she's blonde. We'll start there. I mean, that's obvious. She's blonde. Kind of a California girl. And I'm not so sure that they wore these skimpy outfits. She's actually from Baghdad. So she's from Iraq. Oh, Baghdad. But this is where we're getting into serious Orientalism. That's a term that I used a little bit when we were reviewing Bewitched. Orientalism is a very, very Western take on Eastern culture. So it's not truly Eastern culture. It's just a romanticized, distorted version of it. In the mid-50s and 60s, there was a real fascination. There's been a long-running fascination, but I think in terms of culture and style, there is a real obsession with the Far East. In furnishings and decor and tchotchkes and stuff that you can get at antique malls, I happen to have a little bit of a fancy for period, mid-century Orientalism objects 
especially home decor. Objet d'art and bric-a-brac. Yeah. But in no way is any of this remotely culturally accurate. Correct. Because I actually, I, I have a number of paintings and ceramics. I always tend to think that your fondness for mid-60s sitcoms goes hand-in-hand hand with a lot of your decorating and style choices. I'm sort of challenged in my new house because it doesn't exactly follow those lines to try to bring it back to that style that I like. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that's definitely true. It's some kind of imprinting. I was at some critical phase in my life when I saw these things and thought of them as glamorous. And I've ever since had a mid-century way of decorating. There's a classy mid-century, which I like very much. Posh, elegant lines, minimalist. Mm -hmm. And I do love that. But I also am prone to throw in a little Chinese head that you can put plants in. (laughs) Probably more than most decorators would tell me is appropriate. All of this goes hand in hand with a love of kitsch. It's hard for me to do a whole room without just some nod to kitsch in it somewhere. Well, which is fun. I mean, everyone deserves a bit of whimsy. Yeah. Well, I've read about genies, but I never thought they really... (laughs) It's like something out of the Arabian Nights. Jeannie misunderstands Tony's wishes for a rescue airplane and a rescue ship, giving him a falcon and an ancient galleon, which is some stock footage. I have to get a genie who doesn't speak English. Then finally, Tony accidentally wishes for her to speak English uh, absentmindedly. Jeannie, hmm? <laughs> I wish you could speak English. Somehow I must find a way to please thee, master. She does speak English, but she retains her use of thee, thou, thy, and hast. Thou may ask anything of thy slave, master. Which are all these Old English and Elizabethan English cues that are kind of an easy shorthand to connote an archaic form of language. One that probably isn't true to the Persian that she was speaking, but Not at whatever. All. I will teach thee, Master. We start to hit the moments that Tony gets really uncomfortable by Jeannie throwing herself at him. He seems to be really deeply uncomfortable with Jeannie's enthusiastic willingness to be his slave. There's a lot of hints that this is a sexual slave. She is extremely sexually forward. Yes. Sexual aggressiveness is very off-putting to him. Uh, It makes him uncomfortable because he likes it. That's what I think. (laughs) Okay. Uh, You you may be right. I mean, he he does give in to it. They they make out a lot more than I remember. Yeah. Spoiler alert. They ultimately get married late in the series, but he does a fair amount of smooching with her. My clear feeling about this is that he is attracted to her and he is upset about that, (laughs) that she's attractive. I mean, there's a point late in this scene where she goes into his bedroom. Oh, yeah. Yeah, That's actually at the end of of the episode, which is a very unusual scene. There's all kinds of innuendo with no explanation, but she pops into the bedroom and does something and he is upset about it. And then she pops out and smiles. I keep on thinking that she she caught him undressing. Could be. Or 
she popped into the bed with him. Possibly, yes. That's what it would have been in if it was not a show from the 1960s. They would have just shown you that. <laughs> oh, boy, wait till I get you back to the base. Oh, I'll travel anywhere with me, Master. Sure, sure. I'll wait till General Stone sees you. <laughs> Jeannie, I'll never be able to explain you. Well, I... I'm setting you free. Oh, thou hast set me free, Master. Now I belong to thee. No, 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 no. You don't understand. I, I rescued you, and you rescued me. We're even. I'm going home now, and you, you go wherever you go, okay? Goodbye, Jeannie. Goodbye. So the other reason that Tony keeps pushing Jeannie away is that he realizes that he can't explain her existence to NASA. It could jeopardize his career. A lot like Darren, he can't allow magic to threaten his very earthly ambitions. His earthly ambitions and his relationship with his fiance. Eventually, once he gets free of his fiance, which is done within the first four episodes of the first season, he doesn't want to be tied down to Jeannie. He wants to have a chance to go on dates with other women and to make out with other women. Yeah. Which is kind of surprising. Well, a little different from how this started out where he did want to be tied down to this woman. Indeed. As I read a lot of online IMDb reviews, people were wondering, why was this show never as popular as Bewitched? I love Jeannie. I have to say that I took an informal poll amongst a lot of friends and coworkers, and the overwhelming response I got from all the straight men that I am friends with is that they adored Jeannie way more than Samantha. There is no accounting for taste. <laughs> Why would it be that straight men love Jeannie? And I think it's just because it's a lot more kind of slap and tickle than Samantha is, right? It's a lot more light, bubbly hints at pornography. I think that's extremely accurate. The premise in Bewitched is we can never figure out why Samantha doesn't use her power more and take ownership of it. Here, what we're supposed to never be able to figure out is why Tony just doesn't go for Jeannie. Yeah. Because it's easy. There's never, like, really good reasons for him to not to like Jeannie. And I know in later episodes, a lot of times, kind of the moral of the story is that he should have realized that Jeannie was the one in the first place. I feel there's, there's something very messy at work here behind the scenes. They change Tony's reasoning for why he pushes her away continuously from episode to episode, sometimes within an episode. They can't seem to make up their mind. Is he too ethical or is he playing the field or is he just worried about his job? At some point, he seems to relax into moments where he kind of treats her like the housekeeper and says, yeah, hey, can you get me a sandwich? Yeah, <laughs> I love that part. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. So Tony sets her free, and he regards the situation as simply that they rescued one another, and so they're even Stephen. When he comes back, he admits to the psychiatrist, Dr. Bellows, that he actually saw Jeannie. She seemed very real to me at the time. Of course, I know now that it was just my subconscious. I knew I was off the beaten track, and that I might never be found, and when I saw that bottle on the beach, I, I hallucinated a genie out of it. A genie? Yes. Oh, uh, a girl genie. A girl genie? Yes. 
So there's this little therapy session where he admits it, and that sort of puts everybody on to him. What was this genie like? Oh, she was, well, just your average, everyday, run-of-the-mill genie. <laughs> of course. Beautiful? Yes. Desirable? <sighs> and helpful. Yes, yes. Can we take a, a quick moment to talk a little bit about Dr. Bellows? Yeah. The actor's name is Hayden Rourke, and he was an openly gay actor living in Hollywood. He has a very elegant mid-Atlantic accent that makes him sound kind of British, but rather like Jonathan Harris from Lost in Space, who played Dr. Smith. This is a total affectation. They're both American-born and raised. Captain, that's the classic fantasy. A beautiful girl on a desert island, a girl who would do anything for you. Do you know who that girl was? No, sir. I've never seen her before in my life. She was your mother. <laughs> my mother's in Salt Lake City, sir. I'm a psychiatrist. I know a mother when I see one. <laughs> Dr. Bellows becomes kind of the Gladys Kravitz of the series. But unlike with Gladys, with her toxic personality, he has a totally excellent reason for his scrutiny of Tony Nelson. As a medical officer, it's his job to sniff out mentally unstable astronauts. He seems measured and intelligent and reasonable. It's kind of the opposite of Gladys, really. But the result of his suspicions are more or less the same. Uh, he knows that something about Tony doesn't add up. He always alerts a superior officer, and then he looks foolish when he can't provide proof of his claims. His suspicions and his inability to prove it do drive him to act silly. Yes. But unlike Gladys, he never suspects that it's magic. Right. No, he thinks it's mental illness. In the very first yeah. episode, we see that set up when Tony talks to him about what he has to think is a hallucination or a delusion. Right. That T Tony, on this island, in his distress, imagined this genie. And Dr. Bellows tells Tony that clearly a beautiful, desirable, and helpful woman on a desert island is a classic fantasy of a mother. Yeah, I thought that was funny. It's your mother. <laughs> so, Molly, is... Is this Freudian? Yeah. It's, it's, it's very uncomfortably with me, and obviously with Tony, who insists that his mom is in Salt Lake City. Yeah, that was funny. I wonder if that implies that he's a Mormon. Uh, I was thinking that too. Yeah. It could account for a great many things. It's the Good Housekeeping Magazine's interpretation of Freudianism <laughs> worked into a Hollywood script. I think that Freud himself would be a little appalled at how his theories are thrown around so casually here. But it is true that Freud traced most everything back to early relationships with your parent. And if you're a boy, it would be with your mother. The gender stuff wasn't bent at all. It was all straight up. The girls were focused on their fathers and the boys were focused on their mothers. Dr. Bellows says, I'm a psychiatrist. I know a mother when I see one. <laughs> I like that line. That's funny. So back to the fiancé. Melissa. Melissa. Who I keep on wanting to call Sheila because she occupies so much of the same space, the same sort of headspace, as Darren's ex-girlfriend from Bewitched. But so different. I think we're supposed to hate her, but she's done nothing wrong. You know, she's just like, <laughs> Sheila is a viper from the beginning on Bewitched. You know, she's swooping in to steal Darren away from Samantha. In this case, this is a 
a young woman who's engaged to this man, mm-hmm. and suddenly she's faced with this befuddling situation where there's a half-naked girl in his house when she gets there. Melissa hears Jeannie in the shower of Tony's home, and Jeannie saunters in wearing nothing but one of Tony's shirts. Tony, I may be tolerant, but... But that's a girl! <laughs> it's a girl! What was that one doing here, Master? That one was my fiance. <laughs> Thou art kidding. Now, just a minute, young lady. Melissa happens to be a, a very. Black haired demon. <laughs> well, yeah, look who's talking. <laughs> I can do much more for thee than she can. Now, now stop that, Ginny. We don't do that in America. <laughs> I mean, when you're engaged to General Stone's daughter, you don't do that in America. I feel sorry for her, and I get that we're supposed to hate her, and her personality is like nothing to write home about. There's nothing to really, you know, I don't want a, a spin-off show about her or anything <laughs> to come out of this, but but I also feel like she's kind of a crappy, uh, superficial character that's thrown in to sort of occupy the space. And I think generally she has done nothing wrong and has every right to be concerned. I think it's a little bit of a cliche, blonde bombshells supplanting brunettes, blondes versus brunettes, from Betty and Veronica to Jackie O and Marilyn Monroe. We'll talk a little bit more about Jackie O on the fourth episode, because I I feel like they dress her up in the pillbox hat, the Chanel suit. I, I feel like it's very deliberate what we're supposed to be seeing when we look at her yeah the two shows are like that too that to me the two shows if you can characterize 60s sitcoms about magic like this which is sort of ridiculous but bewitched is the jackie o and genie is the marilyn monroe general stone's on his way general stone's on his way you've got to get out of here right now and i mean oh i'm happy here with thee oh but genie genie i i hate to do this but i wish you to vanish (laughs) <laughs> where, where'd I go wrong? Thou hast set me free. That means that I am free to please thee, and I am going to please thee very much. Oh, no, 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 please. Uh, look, you, you don't understand. Uh, General Stone's going to be here any minute. Uh, I tell you, uh, get back in your bottle, okay? Back in your bottle, huh? Oh, thou art so masterful. <laughs> I really love the view outside Tony's sliding glass doors. Oh, I, I don't think I noticed it. A lot of the living room scene takes place where he's obviously got a, a house with an ocean view, mm-hmm. and there's palm trees out there, and then there's like this lawn furniture and stuff is just really totally period. It, it looks great. The lanai is beautiful. Oh, oh, uh, uh, yeah, yeah. Look, uh, Jeannie, look, 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 look what I have. Isn't that pretty? Look, 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 look. Ooh. See? He tricks her to go into the bottle by throwing something shiny in there. Right. It's a, uh, (laughs) he grabs a black marble from a Chinese checker set and convinces her that it's a black pearl and throws it into her bottle and she leaps into it in slow motion, chasing that jewelry. The criticism I have of this whole episode is that it is a long plot with a lot of scenes and changes of scenes and new characters and it's it feels like if I was giving them feedback, I would have edited it down quite a bit. They have sort of scene after scene of now 
now I'm watching a scene where the he's thrown Jeannie's bottle into a garbage can and all of the officers are coming up to the house to have a talk with him right at that very moment. Can we talk a little bit about her bottle? Yes. Oh, I love the bottle. I think one of the things that I loved as a child was the inside of her bottle. In this pilot, and I think for the first season, which was shot in black and white, it's not very nice. It looks a little shabby. It's a sort of painted set. But I think by season two, it gets to look like a beautiful purple jewel box. And the idea of it was really entrancing for me as a little kid. Just this little circular hideaway covered in purple cushions, and they bedazzled the shit out of it. It's, uh, it was really neat. I love the bottle. Yeah, there are little things that I... So I like the view out of the patio doors. I like the bottle. I like these little details. But I'm just not as smitten with the character of Jeannie. She's annoying. And I keep wanting to tell her just to stop. Just stop, Jeannie. Just stop. <laughs> The young men and older men that I spoke with about their love of Jeannie, they found her very attractive, even as little boys. And I think this leads me to ask you, what are your feelings about Hugh Hefner? Hugh Hefner is obviously a a big popular culture figure when I was a kid. He was super naughty, (laughs) something that we weren't supposed to know about when I was younger. And then by the time I was older, obviously, I knew about him. By the time I was old enough to really have any ideas about Hugh Hefner, it was in the 70s. And he was already kind of a tacky cliche Mm -hmm. to me. But then, you know, I'm a woman and I come from parents who are college professors. We're not the sort of people that would have, if anybody looked at a Playboy magazine, it would have been very surreptitious and not at all. I don't know how to describe it, but there was nothing about, I I was certainly raised to not ever want to be a Playboy bunny. Even if I could have had the chops for it, you know, (laughs) Uh, it just seems like porn to me. Jeannie is very informed by Hugh Hefner's view on sexuality. At this point, when I Dream of Jeannie premieres, Playboy has already been in publication for a decade. This is a small part of the sexual revolution that's sort of coming into play into the sitcom where she is very joyful and uninhibited and kind of empty-headed, but very attainable. More than attainable, she is pushing her sexuality forward, and there's nothing really mysterious about Jeannie. I mean, there's her magical powers, which backfire sometimes to humorous effect, largely because she is a woman out of time because she's completely out of touch with modern culture, so she's a fish out of water. She is very much in line with male fantasies from that time. I'm sure that's true. She's very much a reaction against prudishness. Yes, and hence the harem scene. How'd you get in that crazy bottle anyway? Oh, a wicked and powerful gin put me in there because I would not marry him. You poor kid. Must have been wild in those days. It would please thee to see it. Hey, this is wild. 
I mean, the harem scene is just a perfect depiction of what you're saying. It's definitely could be the inside of the Playboy Mansion, you know, minus the sultans that are guarding the door. Although I would not be at all surprised if Hefner didn't have parties that look just like this. Everyone in a costume, everyone wearing pajamas and, oh, absolutely. and you know, dancing around and the women are all fawning over the man. Tony is surrounded by these dancing girls. The sexuality isn't about one person falling in love with another person in Bewitched, again, to refer to our other show. It's about a marital relationship, and there's always these concerns and jealousies and whatnot. But here, Jeannie pops him into a world where he's surrounded by other women. That's not concerning to her. She just puts a bunch of beautiful women around to dance around him and wants him to partake in whatever that is. That's very Hugh Hefner-ish. In the scene that you're describing, she creates a harem Arabian-themed party in Tony's living room, complete with very Caucasian-looking belly dancers and a sort of a doleful Arabian band of musicians and two bearded turbaned guards that are covered in a lot of bronzer. Yes. Tony himself is suddenly dressed like Prince Ali from Aladdin. Yes, he is. And, of course, Melissa and General Stone show up. Jeannie is <laughs> giggling at her at her impishness. That, 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 she's very impish. She's very mischievous. She's very cartoon-like. That's, I think that's also one of the things that appealed to everyone that I spoke with that really liked Jeannie is there is a, a level of humor that's very Warner Brothers cartoon. It's, it's wacky. A very secret sexuality. So if you're sitting in a situation where you're being confronted by the girlfriend's mom and then imagining a beautiful lady in a bikini behind her, you know, like that's, I think that probably resonates with the constant sexual thoughts of a young man that I hear tell of, but, (laughs) you know, I forget what it is. Like every 60 seconds they're having a thought. And in a way, this is sort of portraying those thoughts, right? Right. It's the parallel internal narrative that is sexual going on in the context of what's actually supposed to be a serious situation. Jeannie makes the entire harem party vanish. When General Stone and Melissa come into the room, Jeannie dresses up like Melissa and sits behind her and pantomimes her. Which is very upsetting to Tony for reasons that I don't understand. I mean, just ignore her. But He, he barks at her to get out of that dress. Yeah. <laughs> Melissa is really turned on by. I know that you've been under a terrible strain, darling. And I'm, I'm willing to make allowances up to a point. But... <laughs> You don't want me to make allowances? Oh, I do, I do. Get out of that dress. What? Uh, I, 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 I didn't mean you, Melissa. She actually is really excited by what she misunderstands as being Tony being sexually forceful. In a way that he probably never has with her. This is very likely, yes. Yeah. Or that's at least the implication. Yeah. They get rid of General Stone and Melissa, and Jeannie giggles as if she's being tickled to death. And while Tony is trying to reprimand her, Jeannie kisses him, and he totally succumbs to her charms. Then he grabs her arms and says, no. Yeah. (laughs) Heads into the bedroom. Yeah, he tells her to clear out by morning and slams his bedroom door. And she looks crestfallen for only a moment, and then she turns herself into pink vapor and travels underneath the door to invade his bedroom, and he throws her out. It reminded me of Fred Flintstone during the end credit of the Flintstones, trying to get the saber-toothed tiger out of the house. Yeah. 
Again, very cartoony. Very cartoony. Uh, But she's the one who's in control, and there's no keeping her out. And the final shot is her blinking off the television set you're watching. It goes to the old cathode tube little point of light in the middle of the screen. Oh, yeah. And then the credits. Sidney Sheldon, that bastard. That's, that's, <laughs> I don't think he's a bastard. I think he's a, I think he's a sleaze purveyor. We're talking about Sidney Sheldon, who is the creator, writer, director, showrunner of I Dream of Genie, And he created a lot of bodice ripping, Harlequin novel inspired, made for TV movies and TV miniseries events during the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Uh, that's what I always remember him for. He's sort of a Jacqueline, Suzanne, torrid kind of nighttime soap creator but he was the driving force behind this show he wrote so much of it that he, he he assumed a bunch of pen names so that his name wouldn't always be in the opening credits but this is his baby i can't say that i am a fan <laughs> i can't say that i'm a fan but you know the the other thing that i have to admit is that there isn't a genie episode that i haven't watched I I think I watched them all as well. So it was my overriding love of magic that caused me to, you know, lower my standards and watch (laughs) Genie, which I did. I mean, I did watch it, and I was always just waiting for there to be something magical. And I think that in the case of Genie, was probably waiting for her to do something that I would like. But I found the magic of Samantha, which was often kind of a snarky retaliation. Mm Mm-hmm. So much more satisfying than Jeannie, which was sort of a bumbling, (laughs) you know, she was trying to please her master and she bumbled around and made a dumb mistake. Right. Her magic backfires more often than not or creates problems around which the plots have to revolve. Yeah. And, you know, in Bewitched, there's a lot of that, too. You know, somebody else cast a spell and it'll create a terrible problem. But it's not like the spell was meant to be some innocent little thing. It's usually meant to be a burn to somebody. Yeah. I'd say that the special effects are about as good or better than the ones on Bewitched. Oh, there is something I was wanting to mention, which is Playboy fantasy moment. There are two scenes where Barbara Eden, who plays Jeannie, is leaping around in slow motion with a big smile on her face, and it is all jiggles. It's the scene where she is dressed in Tony's shirt, and he convinces her that the black marble is a black pearl and throws it into the bottle. And that slow motion sequence where she jumps and dives into the bottle, and also later where she is leapfrogging from sofa to sofa, those are playboy fantasy moments. For sure. It's, it reminds me of there's a... Super cheesecake. Yeah, was didn't there used to be a show like on late night TV, a soft core porn sort of thing of just girls jumping on trampolines? Oh yeah, I I I, I don't know. <laughs> I think there was. I think I stumbled across it. Oh, the Man Show. Are you talking about the Man Show? <laughs> That's the modern day version of this. Yeah, the Man Show. And in the Man Show, they're they're clearly doing this because they're showcasing the kind of base simplistic images that men are attracted to. Are we too prudish, you and I, Molly? Well, you know... Are we slut-shaming Jeannie? Because she only has eyes for Tony, and her object is matrimony. And absolutely everything she does and says is intended to drive her closer to that goal that she ultimately gets to. Are we being too hard on her? I don't begrudge her her right to exist and have her own interests and whatnot. I'm just not interested in them, Mm -hmm. you know? Like, I don't care about watching it. It's not fun. 
<laughs> for me to watch her just jump up and down. I, so slut shaming, I don't know if that's the case. I, I, but I do constantly have a sense of just disappointment in Jeannie that I don't have when I watch Samantha. Or even, you know, like Morticia Adams. Oh, yeah, I love Morticia Adams. There's a sexy lady, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. But she I don't is. for a moment feel about her like I feel about Jeannie. She's got agency. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot more to her. There is. There isn't really a lot to Jeannie. Right. Poor Jeannie. We're going to be doing the next three episodes, and I don't feel like there's any running question that we can ask. I, I don't know that we can ask, can we forgive Tony, the way we've been asking, can we forgive Darren? No, you're right. Oh, let me think. What would be a running question? He flip-flops, like we said, from moment to moment, episode to episode. It's all very plot-driven by the fact he's supposed to be unhappy and scolding. But he isn't even that thing consistently. Darren is always a square, straight and narrow. So we could talk about who are we more turned off by, Jeannie or Tony? (laughs) And I'll probably always pick (laughs) Jeannie. Maybe you will, too. Well, I think I hear the music, so that must mean that it's time for us to go. We hope that you continue to join us for the next three episodes of I Dream of Jeannie. We'll return to reviewing the greatest episodes of Bewitched the following month. In the meantime, you can also listen to other shows on the Piwacket Network, including The Brothers Grimmer, in which my brother Bert and I review recent horror movie releases. And A Breed Apart with Dr. Kate and Stephen. Until next time. Until next time. Bewitched, Bothered, and Bewildered is a production of the Piwacket Podcast Network. Our opening song is sung by Melissa Arning. A special thanks to Melissa for letting us use it. Control to Stardust One. Stardust one. Uh, I, you know, I, I've said this before. Larry Hagman is an attractive man, and they are equal opportunity in showing him in a bathing suit on this show. I think that's must have been Sidney Sheldon's elevator pitch on the show was Arabian Nights meets Space Race. <laughs> Sidney Sheldon. <laughs> Cocoa Beach. Cocoa Beach. Beautiful Cocoa Beach. You know, it um, made me hate Cocoa Beach, too. Like, I never really <laughs> wanted to go to Cocoa Beach. I wanted to go to New York, where Darren and Samantha lived. To, to, to rural Connecticut, where, where they have their home. Or, or oh, to Manhattan, yeah. where he has his office. Uh, I have to break it to you, Molly. They're all filmed in Burbank. I know. I know. <laughs>